Jesus, we ask that you would use your word to help us trust you more and be more free in you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Hello, good to see all of you. I hope you had a good extra hour of sleep. And hello to those of you on the podcast. Thank you for watching. You know, Stanford University is known for many things, but being pro-Christian is not one of them. You'll be shocked to find out. And when I was there, I remember once when one of my colleagues discovered that I was a Christian, his first words were, but I thought you were smart. And I thought you were polite. And then he went on to say, you are a disgrace. You are an embarrassment to this university that you got in. Wow. It made me feel really insecure being there. And it also didn't help that I had another colleague named Allegra who had been voted by the New Yorker magazine as one of their top 10 writers, a list that included writers like John Updike and Norman Mailer and other famous writers. And she had a six-figure advance on her next book. And she was 10 years younger than me. Allegra got on my nerves. She felt, I, all of that made me feel like my position there was precarious. I was there, but, you know, probably because of some clerical error or something like that. Right? Like, like some poor bloke named Steve Dudley should have been admitted instead. And being a Christian made it even worse because it definitely jeopardized my career. When my advisor found out I was a Christian, he said, how'd that happen? Like I'd been hit by a bus or something. So I want to ask you, by, when I, by start, starting out here, I want to ask you, where do you feel like you're in a precarious situation? Like you're in, but you're not sure you're in. Maybe it's at school, kind of you're in, but you're not sure how it's going, and like, oh, it feels precarious. Or at work, you've got a job, but you're like, oh, you know, it feels a little insecure for whatever reason, not sure you can keep it. Maybe you feel precarious in social settings. You've got friends, but you're not sure you're fully accepted. You're kind of in, but you're not quite sure. And maybe sometimes as a Christian, you wonder, is it okay if I let people know sometimes that I go to church? You know, are they going to make fun of me? Are they going to laugh at me? Or what about at work when I'm asked to do something ethically shady and I don't do it? Am I, you know, is that, how's that going to affect my career? Or if I ask to not have to overwork so I can spend time with family, how's that going to affect my career? And all of that can make us feel precarious, insecure, make us feel like exiles. We're there, but maybe we don't fully belong. Where do you feel precarious? Well, in the Bible, a woman named Esther, we just read about her, she's a Jewish exile in Persia, and she becomes queen and saves her people from genocide. So she's in the palace but precariously so. When, if people knew her background as a Jewish ex- exile, that could go very badly for her. So as a result, she makes all kinds of moral compromises. But she does have one shining moment of greatness that I think helps us understand how we can feel more brave, more strong, more stable in whatever precarious situation we find ourselves in, at work or at school or with friends or whatever it is. And she shows us two things about how to feel more stable in precarious places. Two things. And the first is this, don't drink the palace (laughs) Kool-Aid. And by that I mean it's okay to be in the palace or in your job or or, or in in your friends or whatever it is. It's okay to be there and enjoy it. But don't buy into the palace's idea of what the good life is. The counterfeit purposes of our culture that interfere with the things that give real and lasting joy. So what I want to do is I'm just going to walk through Esther's story to show you how she goes from being a very timid person who feels very afraid of her position and uh, that she's going to lose it, very precarious, to being a brave person who actually changes the culture around her. 
So this is her story. The, she's in Persia. The king of Persia, his name is Xerxes. He threw a party where he invited several thousand of his closest male friends to drink themselves into a stupor for six months. That is a long party. That is a lot of alcohol. And, and, and it gave him, also gave him a chance to kind of show off his wealth and his power. So there's, there's the Kool-Aid right there, right? Showing off wealth, showing off power, alcohol, all that. That's the palace Kool-Aid. Well, at the end of this party, he calls his wife, her name is Vashti, to come show off her beauty, and the text implies to do that in a humiliating way. And so Vashti says, mm, let me think about this. Appear naked before several thousand men after six months of Miller time. I don't think so. I'm not going to come. No. And then all the king's advisors say, you better get control of your wife. Otherwise, the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands little male insecurity there. Right? They're the most powerful men in the whole empire, but deep down they suspect that the old saying is true, that behind every successful man is a woman rolling her eyes. So they say, you got to get rid of her. you got to depose her and get a new queen. So Xerxes says to Vashti, you can never see me again, which is the nicest thing he ever did for her. And then they hold this big contest to pick the new queen. And what do you think that's going to be based on her ability to discuss the Greek influence on Persian politics? No, it's going to be based on her beauty. As Pastor John Ortberg says, it's hard for us to understand in our day that there was once a culture so shallow that middle-aged men would actually try to impress people by showing they had enough wealth and power to attract a younger, beautiful wife. <laughs> Shocking that such a culture ever existed. But see, back then, the most important thing about a man was his wealth and his power. The most important thing about a woman was her beauty. Aren't you glad you don't live back then? We're so much better. So Xerxes holds his little contest, you know, Persian Idol. And the contestants all have to go through 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months. That's a whole lot of beauty treatments. And I guess, I guess they figured if he didn't look good by then, then... You know, nothing's going to help you. So, but there's the Kool-Aid again, right? Because we all have to go through an equivalent of beauty treatments. We all have to acquire wealth or achievements or physical attractiveness in order to feel accepted, to feel that we are not precarious, to feel like we are really in and not about to lose it. So one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, are we a concubine to the world system? How focused are we on beauty and power and money or success? So, for instance, look at how we choose our spouses. It's kind of interesting. Let's say there's 10 potential spouses out there, but eight of them don't have the money or the physical attractiveness or whatever that we think is important. So, so we just rule those eight out just, right, just off the top, right? And then just hope like crazy that the two remaining have some kind of character. But see, our culture makes the first cut for us, doesn't it? And then, but then after that, after that, then I'm on a Christian standard. So we walk past all kinds of potentially wonderful mates. See, we have drunk more deeply of the palace Kool-Aid than I think we even know, myself included. Well, then after this contest, a few women are selected to spend one night with the king, and then he would decide which he liked best. And Esther wins, or more accurately, loses, and becomes the new queen. And she is set up for a life of privilege, luxury, prestige, and comfort as long as she does not rock the boat, and she does not. 
And it's at this point that all the Bible scholars agree that they don't much like Esther or her cousin Mordecai. A lot of women don't like her, understandably, because she's passive and she goes along with an abusive patriarchal system. Vashti at least stood up to it. Conservatives don't like her very much either because she sleeps with a tyrant who's not her husband, hides her Jewish identity even from him. She's completely secularized, secularized, total compromise in her faith, jettisons her faith just to get along, just to fit in, just so she doesn't feel so precarious in her position. Maybe a little bit like you, maybe a little bit like me. Because you see, I know I end up making compromises all over the place, left, right, and center. I have a friend who's a Presbyterian pastor, and a tree fell on his house and did a little bit of damage, which he got fixed, but he had to wait on this one contractor to finish the work, and he waited for months and months, right? This guy just wasn't ever showing up. So my friend got frustrated and called him and kind of gave him a piece of his mind, kind of was pretty rude to this contractor, which made my friend feel bad because, you know, pastors aren't supposed to be rude. That's the theory anyway. So next day, the contractor showed up, and super nice guy, and inevitably, the contractor says to my friend, so what do you do for a living? My friend says, oh, I'm a pastor, and the contractor goes, really? And it was one of those reallys, you're not quite sure what it means, right? And, and the contractor said, oh, my, well, my son and I play basketball at the Presbyterian Church just, just down the way, and he names my friend's church. And he said, is that your church? And my friend said, no, 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 I work at the Methodist one next door. <laughs> he didn't, but he was tempted. We all make all kinds of compromises. So does Esther. But as Pete Carroll says, it ain't how you start, it's how you finish. Which I'd say is good news this season, wouldn't you? <laughs> and by the end, Esther is a brave woman taking orders from no one, marching only to God's tune, and she changes the culture around her. Showing that no matter how much you've compromised, no matter how much you have messed up, you cannot write yourself out of God's story. He sticks with you like white on rice or brown on rice, if you like brown rice better. So here's the rest of Esther's story. Here's the rest of it. After she's queen, a man named Haman doesn't like the Jews and launches a plot to kill all of them and gets Xerxes, who does not know that Esther is Jewish, to go along with it. So Esther's cousin Mordecai says to her, you got to go to the king and get him to spare us. And Esther says, I can't. The penalty for going to the king when he has not asked for you is death unless he decides to spare you. And he has not asked for me in over a month. See, he's already bored with his new queen because that's what the Kool-Aid does. The toys are never cool enough. The purchase never big enough. The new spouse never new enough to keep us interested for very long. And so our life becomes dominated by one word, more. So then Mordecai, who up to this point has been something less than awesome as a human being, rises to the occasion and says to Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's palace, you alone of all the Jews will escape. In other words, the palace cannot protect you. The job that you are so tied to, the achievements we're so enamored with, the friends who maybe only like us because of what we can do for them, right, or because you're cool or wealthy or whatever, they don't love you, so they ultimately cannot fulfill or save you. And then he says, and who knows, great words, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Way to man up, Mordecai. In other words, Esther, it is good that you're in the palace. God can use you in the palace. And it's fine to enjoy the palace. Don't feel guilty about being in the palace. But Esther, don't drink the Kool-Aid either. Be in the palace, but not of the palace. Don't need the palace. Don't be tied to the palace. Because, see, you were made for something more. 
than the counterfeit purposes of our culture. You've not been brought to this point for the sake of getting some cool clothes and having the best chariot on the block. You've not been brought here simply to be the ultimate trophy wife. You've been brought here to partner with God in making up there, come down here so Esther, stand tall. This is your moment. And see, you and I, we're in the palace. You may not think so, but we are, in one way or another, all in the palace. Globally speaking, for sure, almost all of us are in the palace. According to one World Bank economist, if you make just $34,000 a year, that's it, $34K a year, you are in the top 1% of incomes globally. You're a one percenter. Now, 34K doesn't go very far here. It causes hardship here. Totally understand that. But from a global perspective, we are in the palace. And that doesn't make us better. It just means we've got more than we think we have. But even if you leave all that aside, we all have some kind of sphere of influence. Every person here at school or at work, maybe it's just to the cubicle next to you. Or your sphere of influence only goes that far at work. Or maybe it's just your friends at school or at work or PTA or wherever you are. But we all have some kind of sphere of influence. We are in some kind of palace, but for a purpose that's greater than ourselves. And we will not feel fulfilled and we will not experience life as an adventure until we live into the purpose God put us there for in the first place. So Esther says, okay, I get it. Get everyone to fast for me because I can't do this without God's help and I will go to the king and then some of the bravest words in the entire Bible and if I perish, I perish. Boom. Esther You courageous woman of God, see what has happened. Sweet little Esther, afraid little Esther, timid little Esther. Esther is always afraid of losing her position in the palace, feeling precarious, becomes brave Esther, Amazon warrior for God. She is transformed. Because see, that's what happens when you stop drinking the stupid Kool-Aid. We are transformed. We are set free from all the stuff our culture tells us we got to have to be happy. And yeah, she and Mordecai, they started off weak, not great examples, but when the chips were down, and maybe only because they had no other choice, but who cares, God works in that anyway, they rallied. And the king receives her, says, what do you want? She says, come to a banquet tomorrow. King goes to the banquet, says, what do you want? She says, I want you to come to one more banquet tomorrow. And she's in that culture, to eat with someone was to say you wanted a relationship with them. She's reestablishing relationship. And she's also being wise. Yes, she's become bold. Yes, she has become brave. But she's also not going to be a jerk for Jesus in her office. And she's going to change the culture relationally. And then at the second banquet, she says, save my life. Because you see, I'm a Jew. And I'll be killed too. And so the king says the Jews can defend themselves. And they're saved. And Haman is hanged for being a big old jerk. And Esther is us in two ways. She's in the palace, but precariously so. One false move, and she's out. Look what happened to Vashti. And we are in the palace, but often it feels only by the skin of our teeth. And one bad grade, one poor performance review, one misplaced word with a friend, and I am out. And so we compromise all over the place so as not to rock the boat because we feel precarious and we feel we're about to lose it. But God works with compromisers. And unless at some point we use the clout we have for more than just ourselves, but to bring healing and wholeness, then the palace becomes a prison. Because, see, it's possible to so root your identity in what kind of clothes you wear or what status you've got that your net worth becomes your self-worth. 
And then you're always anxious because what if it goes away? And what if I lose it and you feel precarious? If you are unwilling to risk the palace, then you are a concubine to the palace and it owns you. You're the tail and it is wagging you. So you got to be willing to let it go. I think there's a song about that. You got to let it go, let it go. I'm not going to sing it, but now it's in your head. Because you see, well, here's another song to replace it with. Because you see, great words. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I bet when Chris Christopherson wrote those lines, he sat back and went, dang, I'm good. Like, that's a good line. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And the way we get free to enjoy the palace but not be owned by the palace is through Jesus. You know, Esther here saves her people by identifying with them as a Jew and then mediating for them applied the favor she had with the king to her people. Does that remind you of anyone? You're, you're in church. Good guess would be Jesus. Who lived in the ultimate palace and did not say, if I perish, he said, when I perish. And he stands before the king and the favor he has, he now gives to us. And when you get that you are that valuable to him, your future is that secure, it frees you and you don't feel precarious anymore because that's your worth. And now everything else is just stuff, and you can enjoy it but not be tied to it and use it to help others. But more than that, now you're beginning to be fulfilled because you know that God is using you to make up there come down here. Not everywhere, but in your school or your office or your neighborhood. Esther didn't reform all of Persia, just the part where God had placed her. Two summers ago, we were visiting my parents, and my dad took my kids on a bike ride and bought them ice cream. And as they were eating the ice cream, my youngest daughter said, oh, this is so much fun. Grandpa, don't die until like five years from now. <laughs> and then she said, no, 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 wait, no, wait, 10 years, right? And my, my dad is just listening to all of this. And then, and then she said, no, no, 20 years. And, and then my son said, Lucy, in 20 years, you'll be super old, like 30 or something, and you won't care if he dies anymore. <laughs> what? I mean, they were trying to work it out, right? But deep in there somewhere, deep in there somewhere, there's a deep truth, right? We're all going to die. At some point, I'm going to die. You're going to die. They're going to take you to the cemetery, put dirt in your face, and everyone's going to come back to the church and eat potato salad. And the question will be, did we leave a legacy? And were we fulfilled as we led our life? Were we fulfilled because we made a difference and we knew it as we lived? All of that is point number one. Don't drink the palace Kool-Aid. Point number two is much shorter. To feel stable in a precarious place, you got to trust that God is at work whether you see it or not. You know, Esther is the only book in the Bible that never mentions the word God. It's alluded to, but never said. And that's not a mistake. Right? It's not like the writer got done and went, oh, oh, I forgot to put in God. Right? It, he's, he's making a, a point that sometimes God helps us in amazing ways, like parts the Red Sea, ten plagues, that sort of thing. Other times it's subtle. Like here, there's just a string of coincidences that if they never had happened, the Jews would never have been saved. The king just happens to get drunk and just happens to depose Vashti. If that had never happened, well, then Esther never would have been queen. At one point, Mordecai saves the king's life, but the king forgot about it. But then one night, he just happened just a coincidence, happened to have insomnia. And the text says, so he ordered the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. I love that. I can't sleep. Let's read a story about me. <laughs> and the page of the book just happened to fall open 
to the story about how Mordecai, a Jew, had saved his life. And that just happened to be the night before Esther's request. So the king just happened to be in a particularly good mood to save the Jews that day. It's just a string of coincidences. But you see, coincidence is just when God chooses to remain anonymous. And all of these things were little things, ordinary things. You know, when God sends 10 plagues, you're like, whoa, that's God. Right? But when King Xerxes gets drunk, you don't go, wow, there's God at work. Look at that. Behold the hand of God. See, even when you can't see him, he's at work. You get that, you're not as worried about your place in the palace because God's got that under control. A few weeks ago, I was at an event where Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, was the speaker. And during, this is not meant to be political, so just a story. Um, and during the Q&A, she said something interesting, that she never planned to become Secretary of State. It was all coincidence. She went to college to be a piano major, but realized that she'd never make concert level, so wandered around for a long time trying to find a new major, and her parents said, we're worried, and she said, my life. They said, our money. <laughs> so just really almost just on a lark, just, just kind of you know, coincidence almost, she just decided to be an international studies major, which led to a string of jobs that led her to become Secretary of State. And now she's teaching, and her students always ask her, well, how do I get to where you are? And they mean, you know, secretary of state or president or something like that. And she says, well, first, start as a failed piano major and go from there. <laughs> see, when we get that God is always guiding us, even if we can't see it, suddenly, suddenly, it all feels a little less precarious. And I'm preaching to myself, but I know these things are true. So where do you feel like you're in a precarious situation how can you refuse our culture's Kool-Aid so that you're not tied to the palace? And so you can enjoy the palace, but not be afraid of losing it because you know that God is at work whether you see it or not. And so that you are free to help others in ways that shifts the culture even just a little around you. And in the process, you find a more fulfilling life. You see, that's how we thrive in exile. That's how you do it. A woman I know got recruited, I'll close with this, got recruited by a principal to coordinate technology in his high school which included corralling these two grabby teachers who were grabbing all the technology for their rooms, leaving everyone else out in the cold. My friend did not want that job because it sounded really hard, but she got one of those not-from-me-so-got-to-be-God thoughts that said, you know, your, your love of people and gift for technology, this is a call. But what she didn't anticipate was how mad a few of the other teachers would be that her salary was bigger than theirs and she didn't have a degree. See, there's the Kool-Aid again. We are how much we make, and it makes everyone miserable. Well, the principal said, well, just ignore them. Well, that's easier said than done, right? She was in the palace, but precariously. There was a lot of animosity coming at her. Well, the first thing she did, she figured out how to get the maximum number of fixes for the maximum number of staff. Now, the two grabby teachers were not happy with that. When she put their needs right alongside everyone else's needs, they didn't like that. They kind of complained. But she treated everyone fairly in spite of all the pressure on her to do otherwise, and she said she was only able to do it through prayer and through God's strength. But over time, over time, even the grabby teachers were kind of won over. And then people began coming to her for prayer and for counsel because they knew she was a Christian. And they'd seen how she cared about not just their tech needs, but them as people. Principal eventually started going to her church and became a Christian. And when my friend retired from that school, the woman who was one of her chief opponents volunteered to organize the goodbye party. And all these contributions came in for a gift and the party because my friend had become so beloved. And over time, there was a real shift in culture in that school. 
lot of less fear and tension around technology, better relationships all the way around. She was in the palace, but precariously so. And there was a lot of pressure on her to play favorites, cut corners, all that stuff, but she didn't drink that Kool-Aid. Knew that she was there not just for herself, but for such a time as this. Trusted that the God who put her there was at work, whether she could see it or not. And as a result, did not feel precarious. Felt courageous and felt secure. Because see, when we do it that way, it takes time. But you begin to believe over time that your life is not nearly as fragile as the enemy wants you to believe it is. Because you see, no matter how many compromises you and I have made... God is always at work, whether you see it or not, and he will never give up. He will never give up. He will never give up on you or me because we were made not just to consume, not just to rack up a great resume. We were made not to atrophy in comfort or just cave to our culture's demands. We were made to partner with the triune God of grace in making all things new. And all that we have and all that we are was given to us by him. And he trusts you with it. And how do you know? How do you know? that you were not called to your position for such a time as this. So Jesus, help us, help me, not to drink that Kool-Aid, not to be tied to the things of the palace, but to be free in you and follow you, knowing that you are always there, always at work, so that we can have the courage, the boldness, the security that you really want to give us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.